We are currently in part 13 of our sermon series called Rediscover Jesus, where we're studying the gospel account of Luke from chapters 4 through 9, which record Jesus' public ministry in the area of Galilee. So let's get right into today's sermon. It's called Judging Others. Uh, there's a classic newspaper comic strip called Peanuts. I don't know if you've ever read it. Uh, it ran for 50 years, from 1950 to 2000, and it focused on a group of young children. You may be familiar with some of the characters, like Charlie Brown, Lucy, Linus, Snoopy. It kind of spun out to different series as well. Uh, but there's one comic strip that I'll show us now, and I want us to see if we might be able to relate with this comic strip. So this comic strip shows Linus and Lucy, who are brother and sister. Linus asks Lucy, why are you always so anxious to criticize me? Lucy answers, I just think I have a knack or talent for seeing other people's faults. Linus questions, what about your own faults? Lucy responds, I have a knack for overlooking them. Now, <laughs> now looking at this comic strip, uh, I want us to us to think about, how, uh, about this for ourselves. Who do you naturally relate with more in this comic strip? Linus or Lucy? Do you feel like you're Linus in this comic strip or, or more like Lucy? I think most of us would say that we feel more like Linus, where we're constantly being judged and criticized by someone else who doesn't see their own faults. And I'm sure that's true. But the reality is that we're all also like Lucy, where we constantly judge and criticize others while we don't see our own faults. We all have a knack for seeing other people's faults, and we all have a knack for overlooking our own. Or to say it more candidly, we all have a tendency to be judgmental towards others while being blind to ourselves. But there's actually a cause and effect relationship between being judgmental towards others and being blind to ourselves. And that's what we're going to look at more and explore more in today's text. So the one thing for today is we will be judgmental towards others if we are blind to ourselves. We will be judgmental towards others if we are blind to ourselves. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, we're going to look at verses 37 to 42. And just want to give a bit of context before we jump into today's passage. So we are in the middle of Luke chapter 6. Jesus has just appointed his 12 apostles, and he is now delivering a sermon to a great crowd of his disciples in what is commonly called the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, so far in this sermon, Jesus has described a great reversal of what it means to be blessed and how his disciples are to be marked by a love for their enemies. And that's where we are in the passage today as Jesus continues his sermon on the plain. So let's read Luke chapter 6, verses 37 to 42. It says this. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. This is God's word. We're going to look at today's passage in two parts. The first part is the problem of judgmentalism in verses 37 and 38. Second part is the root of spiritual blindness, verses 39 to 42. So first, the problem of judgmentalism. Verse 37 to the beginning of verse 38, again say this, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. We should first note that this passage is a continuation of a sermon that Jesus is giving. He's in the midst of giving, where the last thing he said was to love your enemies and be merciful even as your Father is merciful. So here, verses 37 and 38 begin to elaborate on those things. Love your enemies, be merciful as your Father is merciful. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, 
You cannot be loving and merciful and simultaneously be judgmental and condemning. They are opposites. They are mutually exclusive. You cannot be doing all those things simultaneously. Loving and merciful does not mix with being judgmental and condemning. Uh, but in a broad sense, we should notice something. It's impossible to judge not in an in a absolute sense because everybody judges in the sense that we all make evaluations. We all form opinions. We all make conclusions. That's inevitable. We all judge in some way. We evaluate students through tests. We form opinions about candidates through interviews. We make conclusions about products and services through experience. There's no such thing as being judgment neutral in the sense of never evaluating, having no opinions, and reaching no conclusions in life about anyone or anything. That's impossible. So Jesus is not prohibiting all judging, but he is warning against a particular attitude in judging. He's warning against an unloving and unmerciful disposition in judging. Or as the second negative statement clarifies, Jesus is warning against judging in a condemning way. In other words, it's not wrong to make judgments, but it's wrong to be judgmental. We all make judgments, but we don't have to be judgmental about how we judge. Judgmentalism is devoid. It's empty of love and mercy. It assumes the worst of others, gives them no benefit of the doubt, and jumps to the worst conclusions about them. But all the while, it assumes the best of yourself, gives yourself all the benefit of the doubt, and it jumps to the best conclusions about yourself. In social psychology, judgmentalism is known as the fundamental attribution error. The fundamental attribution error. This is the tendency to falsely attribute the negative behaviors of others to their character and internal attribution while attributing one's own negative behaviors to environmental factors and external attribution. So let's say uh, you're driving. If someone cuts you off on the toll road, you think it's because something is fundamentally wrong with that person. In fact, you might even verbalize out loud, what is wrong with that person? But if you cut someone off on the toll road, it's because you're in a hurry to get to an important meeting. That meeting is so important. It is there's nothing wrong about doing, cutting people off along the way because that meeting is so important. If your coworker is late for a morning meeting, you think it's because he has time management issues. But if you're late for a morning meeting, it's because you had insomnia and you couldn't sleep all night. You know, when others make mistakes, we think, why is he so lazy? Maybe if she paid more attention. Well, if you didn't watch so much Netflix, She's so disrespectful. But when we make mistakes, we think, well, I was stuck in traffic. What could I do? I've been sick. I was late because I put family first. I couldn't help it. I was just too tired. You know, we all have a tendency to think the worst of others, but the best of ourselves. We think other people are sinners, but we're just victims to our own situations. And so we judge others as sinners, and we judge ourselves as victims. But the very fact that we're prone to do this just shows how sinful we really are. We all hate it when people do this to us. They assume the worst of us. They jump to conclusions. They give us no benefit of the doubt. We absolutely hate that. And yet, we do the very same thing to others. The very thing that we hate that they do to us, we do to others. All the while, thinking that we're so great. You know, as soon as we begin to realize this, it shows us just how sinful we are. We see ourselves as saints surrounded by a bunch of other sinners. We're the saints. Everyone else, fundamentally, something wrong with them. You know, it shouldn't surprise us that we're this sinful. And it doesn't surprise God that we're this sinful. In fact, recognition of how sinful we are is the beginning of being able to stop being so judgmental. It's when you realize, I do this, 
man, this is really messed up. I really am such a sinner. When you recognize that, that's the beginning to stop being so judgmental of other fellow sinners just like you. We stop seeing ourselves as the exception to all the sinners around us, but as a fellow sinner who struggles and makes mistakes. And the reason that we can do this, especially as believers in Jesus Christ, is because we know that Christ does not condemn us for our sins. But he went to the cross to be condemned in our place for our sins. So we can look at us, ourselves, in all of our sinfulness and not be crushed. And when we believe in the gospel message and what Christ has done in our place for us, it changes us. It cannot help but change us. If we recognize ourselves as sinners deserving of condemnation, and yet have received such love and mercy from our God that we don't deserve at all, how can we then turn to view fellow sinners around us with condemnatory judgment? Rather, as Jesus continues, he says that we should forgive and give. Forgiveness and generosity should be our default disposition towards others. Because we know ourselves to be sinners, who have been forgiven in Christ, our new disposition towards other sinners should be one of forgiveness. You know, that's not to say that Christians don't struggle with forgiving. We do. That's also not to say that we don't battle bitterness and even hatred towards someone when they've hurt us so badly. We do struggle with that. That's also not to say that forgiveness comes quickly. Sometimes it takes time. Sometimes a long time. But to say that Christians should have a forgiving disposition towards others means that we continue to work at forgiving. Being unforgiving, never willing to forgive this person is untenable, unthinkable as a Christian. It's not an option to not forgive somebody. It doesn't mean that it's not hard. It doesn't mean that we don't struggle. We do. But we ultimately can and do forgive because God has forgiven us even greater debts. And we will continue to work towards being able to forgive people that have hurt us so deeply. Also, because we know ourselves to be sinners who have been generously given grace after grace after grace in Christ, our new disposition towards other sinners should be one of generously giving. As Christians, we should give generously and sacrificially of our time, treasures, and talents. It should be an oxymoron to have a stingy Christian. When we've been given so much, it does not make sense how we can withhold so much. Again, that's not to say that Christians don't struggle with giving gener gener generously. We do. That's also not to say that we don't feel the tension of saving and investing to have enough to provide for ourselves and our loved ones. We do struggle with that. That's also not to say that we don't spend on anything to enjoy rest and leisure. We should. But to say that Christians should have a generous disposition towards others means that we continue to work at giving generously. Not giving generously is not an option to us. Being stingy is not an option to us. When we see that in ourselves, we should be fighting against that because it just does not make sense as a Christian. Ultimately, as believers, we can and do give generously because we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor so that we, by his poverty, might become rich. We know that kind of generous giving. We have been recipients of that kind of generous giving. And it's not just what God has already given us in Christ. But the rest of verse 38 expands on the extent of God's generosity that we can anticipate in the future. In other words, God is not done with giving to us. He continues to give and give and give. Generosity and giving is his character. He can't help it. He's not done giving to us. Jesus says this in verse 38. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So this is a marketplace picture. Uh, it's a picture of purchasing grain, and the person giving you the grain that you have purchased is pouring the grain into a container or a measure, 
and Jesus is describing what is a good measure. So the person is trying to maximize how much grain is given. So he's pouring all that grain into the container, but then he presses it down to fill the space, and then he shakes it so that all the grain will settle and fill the container more fully, and then he overfills it so that it's literally running over the top of the container, and then he pours all of it into your lap. It's an overabundance of grain that is poured into your lap. And the lap that it's talking about is the folding of a man's cloak with his arms underneath to receive the grain. You can see a picture here. Except this doesn't do justice. Imagine like even a bigger cloak or a sheet, a bed sheet, that you're just trying to gather all this grain that you're sinking because God is just overflowing and giving you just so generously. This is a picture of how generous God will continue to be to us in all of eternity. We think that he's given us so much, and he has, but he's got so much more to give us. In Christ, God has already lavished upon us the riches of his grace, but in the coming ages, God's word says that he will lavish on us even more the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We cannot even begin to fathom how much more he has to unload and give and give and give towards us for all of eternity. Throughout scripture, this is the picture of God's ever-overflowing generosity to sinners like us. No matter how merciful, how forgiving, how generous we think that we are to fellow sinners, we can never out-mercy, out-forgive, or out-give God. No matter what sacrifices we think that we're making for Christ, we will receive many times more in this time and in the age to come. And again, this becomes our motivation and our empowerment to be merciful, forgiving, and generous because we have no lack. It's not like we're giving at a cost. We're giving, but we're continuing to be filled and filled and filled and filled and more to come in all of eternity. You know, even though we are wretched sinners before a holy God, we have been given so much already in Christ and we will be given so much more in Christ in eternity. In every direction you look, whether you look back to the cross or you look forward to his coming, we see that we already have and will have so much more fully every spiritual blessing in Christ. Therefore, how can we remain judgmental, unforgiving, and stingy towards fellow sinners? The answer is, we can't. We can't. And that's Jesus' whole point. Christ's disciple should not be marked by a judgmental, unforgiving, and stingy disposition. But rather, we should be marked by a merciful, forgiving, and generous disposition. That's the only thing that makes sense for someone who has received so much mercy, forgiveness, and grace. Now, when Jesus says, you will not be judged, you will not be condemned, you will be forgiven, and it will be given to you, it was a passive way of saying, God will not judge you. God will not condemn you. God will forgive you. God will give you in terms of the final judgment. But let me be clear. This is not salvation by works, as if not judging, not condemning, forgiving, and giving will somehow earn our salvation. It won't. That's not how it works. This is not salvation by works. But rather, this is works as evidence of salvation. You don't need to be a Christian to be merciful, forgiving, and generous. I'm sure all of us here know plenty and have plenty of non-Christian friends who are very merciful, forgiving, and generous by God's common grace. But when Christians are judgmental, unforgiving, and stingy, it begins to call into question whether we're really Christians at all. Because Christ is merciful, forgiving, and generous. So something is very wrong when we don't resemble Christ more and more in our lives. I'm not saying that we have to be so already there where we're so merciful, so forgiving, so generous. But where is our life moving? Are we progressing towards becoming more and more like Christ? Or are we so complacent with, I like where I am right now, this is good enough? Or are we even digressing where we're becoming 
merciless, more unforgiving, more stingy. If that's the case, it does not make sense. As Christians, we should resemble Christ more and more in our lives. In other words, quacking doesn't make you a duck, but ducks quack. You and I can quack, 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 but we're not ducks. But if you ever find a creature that will not quack, then it's very unlikely that that creature is a duck. So being merciful, forgiving, and generous doesn't make you a Christian, but Christians are merciful, forgiving, and gracious, but progressively becoming more and more so like their Lord and Savior is. We are not saved by being merciful, forgiving, and generous. But if we find ourselves hardened and constantly being judgmental, unforgiving, stingy, it doesn't bother us that we're that way. Then Jesus warns us, then you should not have much assurance that you really are a Christian, that you really believe the gospel. And so God's judgment and condemnation for your sins is all you can expect. But if we find ourselves constantly being merciful, forgiving, and generous because of the abundant mercy, forgiveness, and generosity that we've received in Christ, progressively becoming more and more like that, then Jesus encourages us, then you should have greater assurance that you really are a Christian, that you really believe in the gospel. And so God's forgiveness and even greater generosity is what you can anticipate and look forward to. But the very fact that Jesus needs to give these commands, to judge not, condemn not, forgive and give, is already very telling. You know, we naturally, in our sinful natures, all of us, do not act like this. We commit the fundamental attribution error left and right. I'm sure even this morning, up till 3, 3 p.m. for this service, maybe even between 3 p.m. to 3.30, we committed this error. We were judgmental. We were thinking something about somebody else, about thinking the worst of them. We're so prone to thinking the worst of others, but the best of ourselves. We all have the problem of judgmentalism. Even as Christians, we still deal with this problem. So how do we address it? That's what we'll get into next. So first, the problem of judgmentalism, and second, the roots of spiritual blindness. That's the real cause for being judgmental, spiritual blindness. Verse 39 says this. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? So here it says that Jesus told his disciples a parable. But it's not the kind of parable with a plot or a storyline. Uh, rather, parable can refer not only to stories with a beginning, middle, and end, but also to proverbial instruction. Also, even though it says that Jesus told his disciples a single parable, he gave three pictures that all deal with the single issue of sight or vision. The first picture is of a blind man leading a blind man, but he gives it as a rhetorical question. Can a blind man lead a blind man? And the answer is no. And then he asks regarding the consequence. Will they not both fall into a pit? And the answer is yes. So the conclusion is that a blind man cannot lead a blind man. So that seems simple enough, but what's the point? Why is he saying this? Remember, Jesus had just appointed his 12 apostles, and he's now speaking to a great crowd of his disciples. And he would later commission them, as we all know, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching them to observe all that he commanded them. So the point is that as Jesus' disciples are called to lead others, but they cannot lead as blind men and women. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we are called to lead others, but we cannot lead as blind men and women. Of course, he's not talking about being physically blind, but he's talking about being spiritually blind in reference to those who lack faith in Christ or those who lack insight regarding God themselves or others. So if Christ's disciples remain spiritually blind, they will lead themselves and others to their destruction. They will both fall into a pit. Scripture talks about pits in a couple ways, either to picture suffering and catastrophe or to picture death or hell. 
In any case, if you remain spiritually blind and attempt to lead others, the result will be disastrous for all parties. That's what Jesus constantly reiterated in his charges against the Jewish religious leaders. They tried to lead others to salvation, but they only led themselves and others into a pit because they themselves were spiritually blind, all the while thinking that they saw perfectly fine. Paul Tripp, author of Dangerous Calling, he writes this, spiritual blindness is not like physical blindness. When you are physically blind, you know that you are blind, and you do things to compensate for this significant physical deficit. But spiritually blind people are not only blind, they are blind to their own blindness. They are blind, but they think that they see well. So the spiritually blind person walks around with the delusion that no one has a more accurate view of him than he does. He thinks he sees and is unaware of the powerfully important things in his heart that he absolutely does not see at all. So if we're blind to our own spiritual blindness, and that's the reason that we begin to be judgmental towards others, how do we address that? How can we begin to see as we ought? Verse 40 says this, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. This is actually a little bit odd if you think about it, because usually Jewish disciples master the teachings of their rabbis in hopes of someday surpassing them. And isn't this the sentiment of any good teacher? If you're a good teacher, you want your students not only to know what you know, but you want them to know more, to exceed you, to go beyond what you could ever go, uh, go uh, to in your lifetime. We want our students to exceed us. But here, it doesn't say that. And the reason it cannot say that is because Jesus is the teacher and we are his disciples. And so we can never exceed Jesus as the perfect, sinless son of God. But we can only hope to be like him. And that's the best thing for us. We will never exceed him. But the best thing for us is we become more and more like him. And he is the perfect teacher. That's what he desires for us. So what does this have to do with spiritual blindness? The only way that we can see as we ought, the only way that we can lead others as we ought, is if Jesus is our teacher who fully trains us to become like him. If anyone else, any other thing is our teacher, we will never see as we ought. We'll always be blind to our own blindness. Jesus must be our teacher, and he must fully train us to become like him, to see as we ought. As Christians, we were once spiritually completely blind. But when we first put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we were given some spiritual sight to recognize Jesus for who he is and what he's done for us on the cross and in his resurrection and to trust and treasure him with our whole lives. But our spiritual sight is still not as it ought to be. It's still blurry vision, so to speak. We're still not seeing 2020. Scripture says, for now we see through a glass darkly. We're not there yet. We don't see perfectly yet. But Jesus is continuing to restore our sight and he's continuing to fully train us as we continue to follow him until one day we are fully glorified, where we will see perfectly as we ought. You know, just like our salvation is, has a past, present, and future element to it, there's also a past, present, and future element to our spiritual sight. We have been given spiritual sight. We are still being sharpened in our spiritual sight. And we will one day be given perfect spiritual sight. So as followers of Christ, we presently, currently, already have some spiritual sight. We see Jesus, we recognize our sin, we accept him as our savior, and yet we are still being sharpened in our spiritual sight, and that'll be our entire lifetime. Another word for this current process that we're in as followers of Christ is sanctification. As we continue to follow Christ as our teacher throughout our lifetime, Jesus continues to sanctify us. He progressively makes us more and more like himself, enabling us to see more and more perfectly as he sees. But how does Jesus fully train us? How does he go about sanctifying us? He sanctifies us, including our spiritual vision, 
through his word and through his church. So first, Jesus sanctifies us through his word. Remember, Jesus is preaching a sermon here, and he expects that his word will transform and continue to transform his disciples more and more into his likeness. That's why every week we preach a sermon expounding what God's word says because we believe what Jesus believes, that it's going to continue to transform our lives over and over, deeper and deeper ways as followers of Christ. It's not just for initial conversion, but for all of our lives, we become more and more like him through hearing, receiving, believing, responding to God's word. For all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So Jesus fully trains us to be like him through his word. Second, Jesus sanctifies us through his church. The church is the body of Christ. We are his hands and feet and mouthpiece, so to speak. And it's through speaking the truth in love, as scripture says, that we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. That is the way that we mature. As he uses us as fellow members in this body to speak the truth to one another so that we mature to become more like Christ. And it's when each part is working properly, when we all understand that and apply that, that the body grows so that it builds itself up in love. That is by God's design. He sanctifies us through his word and fellow members in his church. And it's the second way of his body or his church sanctifying one another to be like him that Jesus addresses next. Verses 41 to 42 say this. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Let me first just say that Jesus has a sense of humor. I mean, I don't know what your image of Jesus is, but I'm not sure if you think about him as telling jokes. I mean, this is not a joke. This is serious. But, but I just think this is such comical imagery that Jesus gives of a person trying to take a speck out of another person's eye, but he can't even get close to him without a log coming out of his eye getting in the way every time. I just think that's funny. Anyways, you can't picture this imagery without chuckling a bit, so I just give you permission to chuckle. Okay, anyways. What is this picture all about? Essentially, this is a picture of discipling relationships in the church. The first person refers to the other person as brother, which is how Christians refer to one another because we've all been adopted into the family of God through faith in Christ. So we now know not only God as our father, but we also know one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. So when he says brother, He's talking about a fellow believer in the body of Christ. So you could say that the first person is committed to our Q2 rallying cry as a church, to sanctifying. He's committed to sanctifying one another as a spiritual family. He gets it. I'm all in. I'm going to sanctify my brother or sister because we're spiritual family. And that seems commendable, doesn't it? Isn't that what we would want every member in our church to be committed to doing for one another? But Jesus does not commend him for it. In fact, what's so shocking in this passage is that Jesus calls this person a hypocrite. And you should know that in the Gospels, only Jesus uses the word hypocrite, and he never uses it to describe notoriously sinful people like tax collectors and prostitutes. Rather, other than in this parable, Jesus only uses it to describe the Jewish religious teachers, like the scribes and Pharisees of his day. He called them hypocrites or actors, people who are pretending to be something before others that they know they are not before God. So despite this brother's good and right commitment to sanctifying his other brother, why is Jesus calling him a hypocrite? He's not one of the Jewish religious teachers. That's, that's who Jesus usually calls a hypocrite. Why is he calling this brother a hypocrite? Because this brother, 
applies a standard to others that he himself is not committed to meet. The measure he uses for others is different than the measure he uses for himself. In other words, he has a double standard. And in that sense, whether intentional or not, he is pretending to be something before others that he knows he is not before God. Or to put it another way, whether intentional or not, he's pretending or presenting himself not to be a sinner before others when he knows that he is a sinner before God. And what's so shocking about this is that a person can be a hypocrite in Jesus' eyes even if they have good intention. I'm sure this brother thought it was a very good thing to take that speck out of his brother's eye. He thought perhaps he was doing what God was calling him to do. Aren't we spiritual family? We should be doing this. He had good intentions, yet he was blinded to his own hypocrisy. Remember, those who are spiritually blind are blind to their own blindness. They think that they see well. And so in the very act of doing something that they think they know is good, they are blinded to their own hypocrisy. And this shouldn't be too far-fetched or unthinkable for us. You know, parents, whether you're a parent or you've had parents, which is all of us, parents often discipline their kids to learn how to obey right away without excuse and with a good attitude. And yet, many times, the parents themselves are not committed to live up to the same standard of obedience before God or even some other authority. And we see the hypocrisy. Bosses often expect their employees to be accountable to complete their work in a timely, excellent, and professional manner. And yet many times the bosses themselves are late, mediocre, and unprofessional in how they carry themselves. We see it. In the very act of wanting to do the, what in the best interest of their children and employees. It's a good thing to teach them obedience. It's a good thing to want them to do timely, excellent, professional work. In the midst of wanting and trying to move them in that direction, parents and bosses are often blind to their own hypocrisy. Especially if you're in a position of leadership, whether at home, at work, or at church, you are probably one of the most susceptible to this. There are temptations particular to leaders that can unwittingly blind you to your own spiritual blindness. As leaders, it's very easy to allow your leadership position to define you, where you're constantly leading others through their problems and struggles. That's your role. I need to lead them through all these issues, that you don't give enough attention to your own issues, your own problems, your own struggles. And so you end up neglecting, diminishing, and becoming increasingly blind to your own problems and struggles. But we must never allow our leadership position to so engulf our identity that we're just looking at everybody else that we're leading rather than looking at ourselves. We must always remember that first and foremost, I am a fellow sinner saved by God's grace, and I continue to need his grace every single day. That has to be our fundamental identity. We cannot forget that. As leaders, success can also fool you into thinking that God is somehow pleased with how you're living. When everything is going well, it's tempting to think that it's somehow God's way of endorsing your lifestyle and decisions. Hey, everything's going great. God must be totally okay with my life and everything that I'm doing. And so you don't take your shortcomings seriously, and you become increasingly blind to them. But we should know that God can use rocks and donkeys to accomplish his will. In other words, success always says more about who God is. He is gracious and merciful and desires to bless. It says much more about who God is than about the people he uses. We might be totally broken, sinful, and unrepented, and God would still use us. It has nothing to do with him endorsing anything about you. Also, especially for Christian leaders, it's very easy to be fooled into thinking that you're spiritually mature simply because you have more biblical literacy and theological knowledge than the average person. 
And so ironically, the very word of God that is living and active and meant to judge the thoughts and attitudes of our own hearts becomes the veil that we hide behind and the blinders that we put up to block us from seeing ourselves as we truly are. But spiritual maturity is more than just knowledge. It's wisdom. It's understanding and living in light of how that truth applies to the situations and relationships in your daily life. In other words, knowledge without self-application is folly, not maturity. In fact, the more you know and the less you apply, it just shows how foolish you really are. It's not a mark of maturity simply to know a lot, even if it's of the Bible. So with all that said, my first plea is, please pray for me. And please pray for all the leaders in our church. Pray that we would not be unintentional hypocrites. Pray that we would be committed to our own sanctification just as much as we're committed to that of others. Pray that we would never allow ministry success to excuse any hidden sin in us. Pray that we would never confuse mere biblical knowledge without personal application for spiritual maturity. It's not. At the same time, may this be our constant prayer for ourselves as well, that we would not be unintentional hypocrites, that we would not be blind to our own blindness, but that Christ would fully train us to be like him and to see as we ought to see. May this be, prayer, be the prayer for all of us, of our whole church, so that we actually resemble Christ together. You know, what's interesting in this passage is that the same person that Jesus calls a hypocrite is the same person he still instructs to go remove the speck from the other person's eye. He doesn't say, you hypocrite, let me go get somebody else. He says, you hypocrite. And then he instructs him. And then he sends them out again. The problem is not so much trying to sanctify another brother or sister in Christ. That's what we should do for one another. But the problem is the order. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. We are still called to be committed to sanctifying one another as a spiritual family. So our Q2 rallying cry is not unbiblical. We should be living that way. But we must first be committed to our own sanctification before we can rightly help others. This does not mean that we need to be perfect by any means. But when you learn a truth, apply it to yourself before you try applying it to someone else. When you're planning to speak the truth and love to someone else, judge yourself with the same truth first. The measure you use for others should be the same measure that you first use with yourself. And that measure should be the gospel of Jesus Christ. No other measure. Not the world's measure, not your own arbitrary measure that you try to live up to, that you project on everybody else. It must be the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is God's measure when he looks at us. That is God's measure when he weighed us. And that is the measure that we've been transformed by and we should continue to see through all of, for all of life, every single person, God, ourselves, others. In fact, it's as we apply the gospel to our own lives that we're able to pr properly help others to apply the gospel to themselves. God's word says that as he comforts us in our affliction, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You know, if we're not comforted by the gospel, then how will we properly comfort others with the gospel? If we don't take sin seriously and grace seriously in our lives, then how will we properly take sin seriously and grace seriously in the lives of others? We cannot just be people that know the gospel but never apply it to ourselves. Don't be a salesman that says, try this product that I've never tried. I've heard that it's good. We should say, I've tried this product day in, day out. It has completely transformed my life. I rehearse it every day, 10, 20, 30 times a day. It has never, ever failed me. You must 
learn this gospel. You must apply this gospel. Your life will never be the same. That makes a world of difference in trying to help somebody with the gospel. If we have not rehearsed and applied the gospel over and over and over again in our lives, we will never be able to help someone else with the gospel in any kind of effective way. We can't. If we're not constantly applying the gospel in our own lives, we will either be judgmental and unforgiving, or we'll be apathetic and uncaring. But we won't be able to speak the truth and love to others as we ought. Because we haven't been speaking the truth and love to ourselves. We haven't been speaking the gospel to ourselves. How can we then say it to others? We'll just be fumbling around with our words because we've never said it even to ourselves. You know, I've often said that evangelism and discipleship is simply preaching the gospel to myself and letting other people eavesdrop. You know, this is what I'm going through. These are my struggles. But this is who Christ is and what he has done for me. And this is who I am now. This has forever changed my life. And they hear that. And I want them to begin to experience that as well. We have to say it to ourselves. We have to believe it and apply it for ourselves before we can help others understand it and apply it in their lives. You know, just as sin corrupted our view of God, ourselves, and others, the gospel restores our spiritual sight of God, ourselves, and others, and in that order. Sin messed everything up in that order. The gospel restores everything in that order. God, ourselves, others. In terms of God, the gospel enables us, to, enables us to acknowledge that God is our creator and redeemer. He's holy and just, but also merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And we see the fullness of God in the face of Christ. The gospel shows us that. In terms of ourselves, the gospel enables us to see ourselves as those made in God's image, but also as sinners who have rebelled against God and who deserve his wrath for our sins. But through faith in Christ's life, death, and resurrection in our place, we are now beloved children of God who have been given the Holy Spirit to empower us to live lives pleasing to God. The gospel shows us that. In terms of others, the gospel enables us to see them also as those made in the, in, in the image of God and yet also fallen sinners just like us. But because of the mercy and grace that we have received in Christ, we are now able to see them, not with judgmental and unforgiving eyes, but with merciful, forgiving eyes. And we are able to help them with love and empathy as a fellow sinner who depends on God's grace every day. The gospel must work through us in that order. And our spiritual sight is restored to us in that order. God, ourselves, and others. And so the passage comes full circle. At the beginning, Jesus said, Judge not, because it is impossible for the spiritually blind to judge others rightly. We can't. But at the end of this passage, Jesus gives instructions to a hypocrite to first remove the log from his own eye and then to take out the speck from his brother's eye. In other words, when he can judge himself properly through the lens of the gospel, he is then able to judge his brother properly through the lens of the gospel. No longer in a judgmental way, but in a way that reveals the gospel and helps conform his fellow brother to the gospel. He sanctifies his brother in a way that is actually in line with the gospel, not in a blinded, hypocritical kind of way. So where do we go from here? You know, being sternly warned by Jesus that we will be judgmental towards others if we are blind to ourselves, what next steps can we take? You know, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, it begins with getting to know Jesus more. It begins by becoming a disciple of Jesus and learning from him as your teacher. But even more than a teacher, we hope and pray that you would know him as Lord and Savior, for that's exactly what he teaches about himself. He doesn't just say he's a teacher. He is Lord, he is God, he is Savior. There's none other. The gospel message explicitly is that we are all created by God and accountable to him. And yet we have all sinned against him and are deserving of his wrath. 
but God in his love and mercy sent Jesus Christ to live the perfect sinless life that we could not live, to die on the cross as our substitute, to take the penalty that our sins deserve, and to resurrect three days later to give us new life and prove that he is and has done everything that he has said. So now whoever repents of their sin and believes in him as Lord and Savior will be saved of their sin. That is the gospel message explicitly stated. And that is the starting point. We begin by seeing Jesus rightly. And from there, he'll continue to help restore our spiritual sight of ourselves and others as we become more like Christ throughout the rest of our lives. Now, if you're already a believer in Jesus Christ, we also start with Jesus to see him rightly through his word. But we are also to see ourselves rightly. And in order to do that, we need to seek help from our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to see what we can never see about ourselves on our own. Remember, we're blind to our own blindness. We don't see our blind spots. But even as I say that, I know that the naturally judgmental attitude in us is probably already protesting, saying, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to ask anybody to speak into or ask me hard questions. I'm not going to share about my struggles. Why would I do that? Won't others just be judgmental and hypocritical towards me? Why would I put myself through that? And to be realistic, unfortunately, that may be some of what we experience. And I'm truly sorry for that. The reality is that we're still Christians in progress. None of us are fully trained to be like Christ yet. And we're all going to make mistakes along the way. No, I wish that weren't the case. I wish we were all already fully like Christ. That we wouldn't hurt each other even as we're trying to help each other. But that day won't come until the new heavens and new earth. But until then... I pray that we'd be merciful, forgiving, and generous to show grace towards others. And as we're all personally reflecting more on the gospel truth, that we are sinners in need of God's grace, not just for initial salvation, but for the whole of our lives, my hope is that we would all experience the beauty of Christ's design for us to be formed more and more into his likeness through his word and through his body, the church. That's by design. Even in our hurts, he'll form us more and more like him. He'll help us to see more and more perfectly like him. Paul Tripp, author of Dangerous Calling Again, he writes this. I have now come to understand that I need others in my life. I now know that I need to commit myself to living in intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, grace-driven, redemptive community. I now know it's my job to seek this community out to invite people to interrupt my private conversation and to say things to me that I couldn't or wouldn't say to myself. I've realized how much I need warning, encouragement, rebuke, correction, protection, grace, and love. I now see myself as connected to others not because I've made the choice, but because of the wise design of the one who is head, the head of the body, the Lord Jesus Christ. I cannot allow myself to think that I'm smarter than him. I cannot allow myself to think that I'm stronger than I am. I cannot assign to myself a level of maturity that I do not have. I cannot begin to believe that I'm able to live outside of God's normal means of spiritual growth and be okay. Since, as one who has remaining sin still inside of him, it is right to say that the greatest danger in my life exists inside of me and not outside of me then wouldn't it also be the height of naivety or arrogance to think that I would be okay left to myself? End quote. We are still Christians in progress, and we all need to be committed to sanctifying one another as a spiritual family. We are left spiritually blind if we are not committed to help each other in that way. We are left spiritually blind if we continue to isolate ourselves in that way. And if we continue to do that, we'll just continue to be judgmental towards others. We continue to give an inaccurate picture of the gospel and who Christ is to each other and to a watching world. And God is not glorified in that at all. You know, as we close, 
I'm so thankful that Jesus doesn't just end this passage by saying to that brother, you hypocrite, and walks away. That would be absolutely devastating and hopeless for us. But the good news is that Jesus himself comes alongside this brother as one who has no logs in his own eyes, and he lovingly helps him take that log out of his eye. And then Jesus instructs this brother to continue to proceed to help take out the speck from his brother's, his fellow brother's eye by doing so now as one who sees more clearly, no longer with that log in his eye. And you know what's going to happen next? That person who has, no longer has that speck in his eye, he's going to go to his fellow brother, now seeing clearly, and remove that speck from that other brother's eyes. And now that person seeing clearly, no longer approaching the next person judgmentally or hypocritically, but with the gospel, taking the speck out of the next person's eye. And as they do that, together they become more and more like Christ. They reveal the gospel, they show the gospel even in the way, the manner that they sanctify one another. What a beautiful picture of the gospel. What a beautiful picture of what Christ does. This is how the gospel works in the church community. This is how spiritual sight is restored in the church community. As we are able to see ourselves rightly through the gospel, we will be less and less judgmental towards others and more and more merciful, forgiving, and generous. We will become more and more like our teacher, Lord, and Savior, for that is exactly how Christ has been towards us as sinners in need of grace every single moment of our lives. So now let's get into the life application. First, don't minimize times that you've been judgmental, unforgiving, and stingy towards others, but repent. You know, don't think that it's okay when God convicts you. You might be blind to it, but when he allows you to see, don't brush it off. Allow Jesus' warning to sink in. If you find yourself hardened, okay with, no longer bothered by constantly being judgmental, unforgiving, and stingy, then you should not have much assurance that you really are a Christian, that you really believe in the gospel. And so God's judgment and condemnation for your sins is all you can expect. If Jesus really is our Lord and we take what he says here seriously, then we should not make peace with being judgmental, unforgiving, and stingy. It's a big deal. We should go to war with those things. We should not be okay with it. We should repent and cry out for more of God's grace to transform us from the inside out. God, I, I am judgmental. Help me to realize how gracious you've been towards me and help me by your grace to show and demonstrate who you are to others by being more uh, forgiving, merciful, generous. Second, don't pretend not to be a sinner before others, but share sin struggles to trusted brothers or sisters in Christ. Now, when was the last time you shared a particular struggle with sin that you had with another trusted brother or sister? So it's not just, I'm not just talking about, you know, work was hard, you know, family's hard, it's been a hard week, but actually talking about, I'm struggling with this sin. You know, I've given into it time and time again. I hate that. I don't want that. I want to please God. Can you help me? You know, can you hold me accountable? Can you ask me questions? Because I don't even know why I do this, but I want to stop. Would you help me? Would you pray for me? Would you ask me questions? Would you hold me accountable? And not just sharing a sin struggle that you have already overcome, but a sin struggle that you're currently in. If you can't remember the last time that you shared that, then perhaps you're unintentionally pretending or presenting yourself not to be a sinner before others. And as a Christian, that's unthinkable, that's untenable. In fact, Jesus calls that hypocrisy. If we believe that we are sinners who need God's grace every single moment of our lives, then let's act accordingly and be willing to share those sin struggles to trusted brothers and sisters in Christ. Third, don't isolate yourself in blindness, but seek out discipling relationships to help one another to see God, yourself, and others rightly through the gospel. Discipling relationships are those where we intentionally help one another to follow Christ, to better understand and apply the gospel in our lives. 
Now, one formal context for this in our church that some of our life groups have been implementing is called Life Change Group, or LCG, where it's uh, a same-gendered group of two to three men or women uh, meet regularly to intentionally help one another to follow Jesus through care, commitment, and challenge. You know, discipling doesn't have to necessarily be through a formal context like LCG, but if we know that the greatest danger in my life exists inside of me and not outside of me, then we should not isolate ourselves in our sin and in our spiritual blindness. That is the most dangerous thing for us to do. But we should proactively seek out these kinds of discipling relationships to help one another to see God, ourselves, and others rightly through the gospel. So once again, the one thing is we will be judgmental towards others if we are blind to ourselves. Can we all stand as we respond to God's word together? You know, throughout the sermon on the plain, Jesus has said a lot of hard things. He's completely reversed what it means to be blessed in our minds. He's challenged us, saying, if you are my disciple, you will love your enemies. And now he's challenging us, saying, you cannot be my disciple and still be compl- and blind and being okay to be blind, going about life judging, being judgmental towards others, all the while saying you've received overwhelming mercy, forgiveness, generous grace from me. That does not make sense. You know, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, I hope that you would begin to see how that 